Everybody, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're in the octave of Easter. Well, you guys are. Oh, I mean octave of Christmas. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're in the octave of Christmas. We're recording this before Christmas. Oh, man. As you already told everybody in the last podcast that we're doing the triple header, or at least trying to. Yeah. So I want to take this opportunity. You just just put the force on You better believe I did. I want to take this opportunity before Christmas has happened, at least for us, on this side of the podcast, as to repeat the same thing I repeat every year, but I'm going to do it on air before 10,000 people. Father Peter, would you like to come over to our house after the 4.30 Mass to have a drink before Midnight Mass? I would love to. I'm not sure I can. <laughs> Fine. I just want to put you on the spot. Thank you. That was good. Because you once told me that you thought my inviting you every year was an afterthought at the last minute that we just think of at Mass. Really? I want you to know it is thought out. You are invited to our house before Midnight Mass to have a drink. Dude, you are very And to have some kind. eggnog and to have some revelry. Revelry in the beautiful feast of the incarnation of our Lord. Absolutely. Thank you. But I want you to know that you are not an afterthought, and I want the whole world to know. I think you even said it on the podcast once. Dude, that I well, that how rude am I? No, you're not rude. I just wanted to, you know, put it out there. Okay. Anyway, Merry Christmas, everybody. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas. Hope Santa brought everything that you wanted. Everything is yours. Everything is mine. <laughs> everything is open. All the present time. See, I told you, the more podcasts we do, the happier you're going to become. Mm. And it's working. I started off as Grumpy Cat today. And now you're better, because... We just keep going. It's just, this is it. And I mean, and I'm also in on my second Red Bull, which let's just be honest about that. Yeah. That's absolutely. pretty awesome. Here's the, uh, here's the other reason I want to invite you. Well, I, I do want to invite you regardless. But this Sunday that we're looking at today is the Feast of the Holy Family. Holy Family. And if there's one key that holds all these readings together, it's the fact that families are messy and weird. <laughs> that's, that's totally what I'm getting from these four readings. Dude, that's amazing. Explicitly. So mm. I want to invite you into the weirdness of my family on Christmas Eve. That well, was the connecting piece there, but anyway. Well, thanks. It wasn't I, you very know, well done. Well, this is a shout out to all of you with messy, weird families on... Which is probably all of you. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to do something unprecedented today, and I'd like to suggest two unprecedented things. Unprecedented? Dude, how do we... No, I'm not sure about this. Well, no, you, one of them you already know. So first and foremost, we sort of, as a rule... Well, I guess it's kind of a rule. This is what we've always done. Often when there are multiple options for readings in the Mass, we always go with the first one. Right. Because it tends to be the case that the second reading, in my humble opinion, is usually the cop-out reading, yeah. which is like the shortened, condensed version of the really long, good one, which is the first reading. However, the first reading for this Sunday, there's two options, and they're both pretty good. The second option, I think, is actually going to be more fruitful, though. Have we done this before? Well, remember my rule: I can't go back and listen to old podcasts. I, yeah, I, 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 uh, I know that rule. I don't. I think we went with uh, Sirach last time. And I not think Samuel. we probably did. I think that would have been our in, in, inclinations. So the two options for the first reading this week are either from Sirach, um, chapter three, which you might get this week, which is all about um, basically what a what a good family should look like in a virtuous family, which is very good. But our second option is from First Samuel, which I like it because it's a really kind of messy story. This is one of those where you kind of have to read in between the lines, which I'm excited to read in between the lines because I think there's some weird stuff going on. Okay, sweet. really, really cool weird stuff, but it's not what you'd expect. And and it's kind of like my mustache. It's just like your mustache. You kind of don't Gross. expect it, and then you, <laughs> then all of a sudden, 
like, I found that it, it, it it's, <laughs> that I get to enjoy my food a couple of times during the day. Oh, that makes me want to throw up. Yeah, I cooked some risotto the other day. Okay, and I keep on oh, right. and and I kept on getting to smell my risotto. All day. When I say it makes me want to throw up, I mean that literally. But literally, well, just drink more Red Bull. Thanks, drink man. more Red Bull. Oh. Um, the other thing about the first reading is that it it throws into a very interesting conflict all of the other readings. Oh. So I want to talk about that. I want to dig it. I want to unpack. So our first pause. reading. Pause yourself. Ah, well, ah they, we're okay. back again. We're back. You never this, even noticed we were gone. The space-time continuum collapses. I think that mm-hmm. our ability to perceive the space-time continuum is actually, um, I perhaps it's like that. You know how God says that one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day? Yep. What if it's like that? What if he just like pauses stuff on a divine level and we just don't know and then like things happen? I mean- it happens in recording. Why not happen in divine realities? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> totally agreed. Dude, that there we go, man. That's that's my sci-fi exploration before we hit these nice messy readings with yeah. Samuel and, and how Samuel throws everything into confusion. The divine flux capacitor. Divine flux capacitor. All right. So for our first reading for this Feast of the Holy Family is coming from First Samuel chapter one, oh. verses twenty through twenty two, and then also uh, verses twenty four through twenty eight. Did you read twenty three? That's, uh, I'll have to wait and find out. Boom. <laughs> Our responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 84, which spans 2 to 3, 5 to 6, 9 to 10, uh, with our response coming from 5A. Uh, our second reading. <laughs> no, I got it. <laughs> I am not reading verse 23 now. <laughs> our second reading is coming from the book of Colossians. Keep it Colossi. Uh, uh, Colossians. I uh, Sorry. I keep it Colossi. Colossia. Chapter. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. There's also two options for this as well. This is another perennial example of the traditional second option cop-out. Yeah. Because there is a, a hard passage, which is removed in the second option. Well, actually, there's three options. You can go oh, yeah, there are three, options. 3, 12 to 21. Or, or skip it all together. <laughs> 3, 12 to 17, or just go to 1 John. Let's just, <laughs> let's just, just make that happen. Mm. Yeah, so we're going to go with the first option. So uh, 12 through 21. Yeah, and then after that, we'll be going into the Luke 2, 41 to 52. Mm-hmm. Could I make a suggestion? No. Because I said there were two unprecedented unprecedented things today. This one isn't totally unprecedented, Can but I make rare. a suggestion? Stop it. You're going to say, you're going to insult me. No, I no, see no, it no, in no, your this, eyes no, right this, now. This is what I'm going to say. What? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Mr. Jonathan Livingston Siegel, you're sitting <laughs> in the combat seat. Let's switch seats. I will not take no for an answer. Is this a this is a quote from something? Yeah, come on, dude. Terry's. Oh, that one. Jonathan Livingston Seagull is that? Yeah, that's what that he Yeah. If Scott, if Father Scott Harder by any chance is listening to this podcast, that is a shout out for you, Mister <laughs> Jonathan Livingston Seagull. He'll he'll know what it means. Okay. All right. Okay, so here's what I'd like to suggest. Okay, talk could to we me. could we do the gospel first? Uh uh-uh. uh. Come on, man. No, come on. The gospel paints everything. You're betraying your own. And we've principle. done it before. Have we? Yeah. You thought it was unprecedented. And then I just told you it, even though we've done it before. We don't have to. Is it going to throw you off? Not in the slightest. I actually, I wanted to do that at the last one. Did you? But but I, but I like, did you see how obediently I waited? Yeah. Well, we I don't have to. I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to take charge of the podcast. Well, this is, the, okay, so do you know my rationale on why we can actually do the um, gospel first? 
because we've already gone through a full cycle? No, no, because what happens is that when... <laughs> That's our when, reason for everything. That when we, we can do whatever we want to on this podcast now. We, we really can, actually. We can do experimentation. The first reading is from Maya Angelou. <laughs> the second reading I was is, once at a mass where the first reading was from Maya Angelou, if you can call it a mass. Anyway, that's a story for another time. Dude, what about the um, cosmological bear? Remember the... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The cosmological... No. Nope. Oh, I can't remember it right now. Cosmological bear. Yeah, there's a... <laughs> Sounds like a terrible children's book. Yeah, it is. it is. Um, so let's start in Luke. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't oh, have the, to. You're, on, you're uncomfortable, on, though. No, no, no. The, the reason why I said that this is good to do is because okay. the people, when they hear the sermon, the last thing that they heard is the gospel. Uh-huh. And then they have to reflect to get to the other readings when, and same with the priest. And so it's the most immediate thing that you experience. Yeah. Excuse me. Okay. This is just the way that I've thought about these, and I can't stop thinking about them in this order. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I really didn't mean to burp. Just Did now. you burp? I didn't. No, I thought it was a hiccup. It's a hiccup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Luke, Luke, this is a, a very well-known reading, and it's I, I, just, I, I like to I want to read everything against this backdrop because it it along with the First Samuel reading throws the other two readings into a bit of seeming conflict. I don't think it's actual conflict. But it seems to conflict. And this is, I think, where the church just kind of wants to mess with us a little. <laughs> Not mess with us. But you know what? It wants to make us think a little okay. bit because things aren't as easy as they seem. So this this reading from uh, Luke chapter 2, we're really kind of fast forwarding a little bit chronologically. It's weird. Next week, we'll kind of go back in time. So this week in the Gotta reading. go back in time. So literally, we're, what, two days after Christmas. And we're jumping to the time when Jesus is 12. So we've really jumped. And then we're going to go backwards next Sunday on the Epiphany and talk about the, the star over Bethlehem. And it's, it's, So timeline's really weird. But anyway, for now, we're jumping ahead 12 years uh, to what is probably Jesus' bar mitzvah. So this is that moment when Jesus is 12. Am- when- a- Ambrose, Ambrose said the reason why he was 12 is because that is how many apostles it was going to take to spread the gospel. <laughs> I read that in the Katina Aura, and I was like, Oh, I was man. like, I was like, brother, that's a little bit of a stretch. I'm just it's saying. A, okay, thank you. I didn't want to be the one who said it. Yeah, I'm like, I, I love you, fathers of the church, but like, everything's not an allegory. Sometimes somebody's just twelve. <laughs> well, but it, it's not insignificant. It's not just a rando number. I mean, this is the this is the time when a young man would go up and and literally have his bar mitzvah. Probably his coming of age, um, his not presentation, but they would offer sacrifice for him. So that's where we are. That's what's happening. Sorry for all the dings. I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> You guys can't hear it. Um, 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 um. So that each year, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the festival custom. And after they completed its days, they were returning. And the boy remained behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. So it's that great scene where they're coming back from Jerusalem. Um, there's, I never fully appreciated this passage until I had kids. And realized how easy it is, especially in a group of people or family or something, to lose your kid. Really? It's really easy. Like when we're, you know, in big groups of people or other kids or families or friends, it's just kind of, maybe I shouldn't say that on it. (laughs) (laughs) Kids kids do not listen to this podcast. But there's definitely been lots of moments where, you know, we're with a bunch of families and, you know, doing stuff together. And you're like, wait a second, where's Lily or where's Samuel? Like, I thought they were with all the kids. And, you know, we've never lost a kid yet. You know, we're seven years into parenthood. We haven't lost one yet. But I can see how you would do that. And you're like, well, I thought he was with Aunt so-and-so or with Uncle well, yeah, such-and-such. I'd with imagine that the closer family. the community, the more easy it would actually be. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's probably tons of them. 
which is kind of beautiful in one sense that there's sort of this trust that, well, it's, this is safe because he's with family and he's 12, you know, he's not, it's not like losing your four year old. You're like, well, I I would assume my 12 year old is here, you know, and, and can be trusted to be on his own for a second. So anyway, they're coming back. I don't, I don't know. But again, I've, I've gained this new appreciation for the Holy Family of like, yeah, that would be really easy and the beauty of big families and everything else. But who knows how, oh, after three days, oh, that's when they find him. So I, I don't, but, I don't, which, okay. oh, it's a day's journey. That's what it says. They journeyed for a day. So a whole day and you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen Jesus today. <laughs> Where is he? <laughs> that sounds a lot like, uh, uh, like somebody who lives the religious life. Can you imagine? I haven't seen Jesus today. Oh. I better go pray again. But can you imagine? I, I mean, just just imagine being Mary and Joseph. Mary knows that she's raising the Messiah. I'm sure Joseph does by this time too. I'm sure they've talked oh, about yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah. And have you're like, dreams and shoot, he named him. I lost the Messiah. <laughs> like it's not just I lost my kid. Yeah. I lost God's chosen one. Shoot. What do I do now? I mean, just the weight of that would be ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually, my, my mind immediately goes back to um, uh, <laughs> this construction going this, on in the basement. You guys, you guys have no idea. This is oh. like, this is like, we're in the mess, man, right here. It's been a bit We've, of a yeah. It's been a very noisy day. So thank you for your patience in that. Um, the um, but uh, what's his name? Who had the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel? Jacob. Jacob. I think of Jacob. Yaakov. And um, what's the youngest son? Joseph. Uh, Benjamin. Oh, ben- Joseph is the jo- youngest. Oh, Benjamin jo- is the second. Jo- jo- Benjamin is the second youngest. Right. Right. Joseph is Joseph the second. Is the second. Youngest. Benjamin is the youngest. Yeah, I always yeah. get those two mixed up. Yeah, yeah. I just because they were the ones losing him from Rachel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, but that wasn't. This is uh, presumably this is their own fault. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, like, I know. I'm just, no, no, but, I know. That's but, what, right? I'm just trying to make connections. No, dude. there's lots of good connections. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So, um, and the, 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 my next thought on this, you actually opened my mind to this, which I've never considered it before. So you, you guys know the story probably. They go back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus in the temple. And when they find him, he's in the midst of the rabbis and he's teaching them. He's listening to them. They're asking questions. And it said, and all who heard him were astounded. So this is what the fourth, uh, the fourth joyful mystery, the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. Yeah. And he's teaching all the teachers. And so when I've always heard this story. I've always just imagined, well, the rabbis are fascinated and they can't believe how wise he is and everything else. But the word that's actually used in Greek that we translate as astonished, it's actually a pretty vague word. It can mean a lot of things. They could be angry. And, you know, you're, you mentioned some of them probably are like, who is this kid to be teaching us? Some of them were probably curious. Did, some of did them I were, say that once? I thought you did to point out that there's kind of an ambiguity in this. I, which that, that sounds like me. It does, but it raises these beautiful spiritual reflections of... How do we receive Jesus? Are we threatened by him? Are we intrigued mm, by him? Are we yeah. curious? Are we enthralled by him? There's all these different, and it's probably a big group of rabbis, so there's probably lots of different ways that they're responding to him. But it, it raises this beautiful theological reflection and meditation on that. You know, some of them probably are angry. Like, who do you think you are telling us our own law? You're only 12, and maybe others are, are curious about it. But So they're astonished. And his, his parents saw him, and they were astonished. And again, that word, astonished, what are his parents' reactions? And of course, Mary is sinless, but that doesn't mean she can't be angry at him or frustrated that he's done this, you know? And she's just like, what, what did you do? Why did you make us do this? You know, you're 12, you should know better, kind of a thing. Yeah. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking with, for you for great anxiety. And he, of course, says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and the word that we're talking about, um, ekfleso, ekfleso, <laughs> I can't say it very well, um, is to be caused to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Oh. Amaze, astound, or overwhelmed. But it has positive and negative sense. Yeah, yeah. It can be um, the disciples were terribly shocked. You could use it in that way. Or the parents of Jesus were dumbfounded, or those who were being taught were dumbfounded. Yeah. They're just like, what? Like, what is this? Yeah, what? yeah, totally. Yeah, overwhelmed. Overwhelmed is one. Yeah, and then it says, and then then he went down to Nazareth, and he was obedient to him, to them rather. I, I also wonder about Jesus. Is like maybe I, I, Jesus doesn't do anything wrong because he's the Messiah. Or there's no. I mean, could you? I don't know. I'm just fascinated by this. Like, what what's the dynamic going on? Is he? Is he thinking, yeah, maybe I should have told them, you know, maybe I shouldn't have, I mean, he's sinless, but that doesn't mean in his humanity, you know, can he make a misjudgment? Probably not. I'm just fascinated by this whole scene. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to back off a little. I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to, not that he wasn't obedient to begin with, but it's fascinating. So, well, he makes, he makes Joseph and Mary uncomfortable. Right. In in a, in a profound way, but then. And he sees that and he recognizes that. And then, he, but then he and he responds out of obedience when right. he finds it. Right. But like, does he like? He's got to know that this is not going to be. This isn't going to go all smooth. I mean, no twelve-year-old kid I know ditches <laughs> their parents and goes to do whatever they want to do and doesn't have some halfway knowledge that this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Didn't you know yeah. I was supposed to be in my father's house? Like, you don't talk to your mama like that. Yeah, like, <laughs> and I don't. I don't know. I, but. What's beautiful about it is this, and here's this, this is where we, sometimes we whitewash the scriptures a little bit and, and see them with over pious eyes. This is a moment of insight into the Holy Family that's just messy. People are on, misunderstanding each other. They're frustrated with one another. And all of a sudden the Holy Family looks like a regular family. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't get these insights, but things are messy a little bit. Was, was he disobeying his parents by not staying with him? I don't, I don't know. Probably not because he has to be fully obedient, but it's messy. And that's, that's what I love about this is because you can't get an easy answer. Was Jesus disobedient? Well, you can't really say that, but it's, it's messy. It's complicated, which is what families are. So with kind of that as the backdrop, I want to then back it up. What do you say? Or any, any other thoughts on that for now? No, man, that's good. Yeah. I don't, I also don't want to leave it, um, ambiguous, but no, the scriptures kind of leave it ambiguous, don't they? It's mysterious. It's left kind of mysterious, which is why in her great wisdom, the church has made this one of the mysteries of the rosary because you can't quite wrap your head around this one. What's what's going on here? It, It deserves meditation from us. It does. So that takes us back to a story that profoundly prefigures Jesus. So, um, before, so this is first Samuel. And if you remember the, the story of first Samuel, there's that great scene. The book of Samuel begins with the scene of Hannah, this wonderful, holy woman who's stuck in a pretty bad marriage. Clearly, you know, you get the sense that her husband's kind of a jerk. He's got another wife, so he's already polygamous. That's already bad. The other wife can have children. Hannah can't have children. The other wife makes fun of her. Uh, the husband is condescending to her. He's like, why do you want children? You have me. I'm all, the, you, you know, it's just this lousy. You're like, poor Hannah, that stinks. And so she she's, just weeps. And she's out at the, at the feast. So they're at the tabernacle, which is, this is the point where the temple is in Shiloh. They don't have the temple building yet in Jerusalem because there's no kings yet. But they're down in Shiloh where the, where the Holy of Holies is. They're making pilgrimage. 
and Hannah is just, she goes to God's presence and she's just pouring her heart out. And she's just like, everything is just so hard. And the priest thinks she's drunk just to add insult to injury. Like this poor woman, she's got this other wife who makes fun of her, this husband who's condescending, this priest who just doesn't understand. It's just, it's rough. And she's pouring herself out saying, you know, this is God, I, I just long for a child. And God hears her prayer. And this is where we kind of pick up the story. And it says, Hannah conceived. And then she bore a son. She named him Samuel, which is our sons. And we, we named him this. The, the word Samuel means God herds. Shamar El. So God, the hearing of God, where God listens. So she wants the son. She calls him Samuel. The same story as us. And actually, we named our son Samuel because we desperately wanted um, this son. So we prayed for him. God heard us. But actually, my wife Annie is oh. named after Hannah. No, she's not named after Anne, but she's actually named, but they didn't want to call her Hannah. So that it's kind of a, you know, a slight derivation of that name, but that's who she's actually named after. Annie Hannah. Yeah. yeah. Her, her mom had a huge devotion to Hannah. Oh, I'm going to call Annie Hannah. For you now. should. But so like, what's up, Hannah? <laughs> so she has this son, which she prays fervently for, but she also promised God that if she has a child, she would give him back to God for his service. And so this is fascinating because... So it says the next time her husband Elkanah was going up with the rest of the household to offer the customary sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow. So they're going up on pilgrimage once again to Shiloh. Hannah didn't go, explaining to her husband, once the child is weaned, I'm going to take him to appear before the Lord to remain forever, and he will be a perpetual Nazarite. So here's what I like about this story, and here's where you read in between the lines. We know that Elkanah is kind of a condescending jerk. That's what we've learned so far in the story. Hannah desperately wants a child. Elkanah knows that, and that's part of why he's being condescending. He knows that she desperately wants this child. She finally has him. And not only does she say, okay, now that I've had this child, I'm going to give him back to God. But then she tells her husband, hey, guess what? I'm giving the child to God. There's no consulting with him. There's no, hey, what do you think about it? I mean, you get the sense, at least culturally, that that's kind of the man's decision. That's the husband's job to make that call. And I just, I would love to see the look on Elkanah's face. And he's like, what do you mean you're going to give my son? (laughs) We don't get his response, but you can kind of use your imagination of, and this is another one of those examples where the family life is just a little bit messy because here's Hannah, who culturally speaking, doesn't really have that authority, but she's like, I made a vow before God. You're not a good husband. anyway. Not that being a bad husband discounts his having a, a role of authority, but She's like, this is what's happening. You got to get on board. And I just wonder what his response was, you know, either dumbfounded or angry or what, you know, but she's upending the structure of how you'd expect things to go. Which, Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, not ironically, but interestingly enough, when Hannah finds out she's going to conceive and bear this son, she sings this great hymn, this canticle, basically, which is. It's not identical, but it so clearly echoes the Magnificat. And when Mary sings the Magnificat, it's clearly an echo to Hannah's song that she prays, which Mm, is all about ironic reversals. The hungry being filled up, the rich being sent away, you know, the lowly being pushed up and the the, The the mighty mighty being cast down, down, which is what Hannah's doing. People call this the the mini Magnificat or the little Magnificat because Mm. that's what she's doing. Um, It it also says that... um, when she goes up and she offers him, uh, 
I think you might have to read on, but Samuel actually has been trained to pray and stand before the Lord better than Eli the priest has, because well, yes. his mom is powerful, and she taught him how to stand in the temple before the Lord, and she taught him what that meant and what it looked like. Oh, yeah, and then and then Eli only gives him a piece, and then everything comes together. Yeah, and, and Eli's a lousy priest. He's a, Eli's a lousy, lousy priest, and, and in fact, actually, he comes... In, in a certain sense, the gift of all of this out of the suffering yes. comes as a judgment upon Eli and, and the his whole, children and his children and his sons, yeah. And, and because this is coming out of a, a, this is coming out of the the deep desire of heart and yeah. and really what it means to stand uprightly and to surrender and to offer oneself to the Lord. Like, yes, the the saints suffer along with the Lord. I mean, no, it's absolutely, just, it's time. just the truth. And and oftentimes yeah. there's a mysterious link between grace and suffering. Yeah, where sin abounds, Absolutely. grace abounds all the more, and 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 then this grace is powerful, man. Samuel is—he's got the goods. Yeah, <laughs> well, and Samuel is going to be the one who actually anoints the kings. First Saul, who's kind of a schmuck, but then also David, and Samuel is a holy, holy man. Yep. In the midst of this time in salvation history where everyone's just terrible, oh, <laughs> Samuel yeah. and Hannah are held up as these these icons of light. Yes, which is what the holy family is doing as well. They're these icons of light. Yes. Um, Elkanah, notwithstanding. But that kind of takes us into the psalm. Okay. So Psalm 128, there's another couple options for psalms, and I was thinking we'd do 128. We haven't talked about that. Oh, Does that work? I chose 84. Oh, my gosh. Did you really? Well, I mean, that's fine. We can do that. I didn't really study it, so (laughs) I just... That's the spirit. (laughs) Um, Can we talk about 128? Yeah. I I didn't even have that as an option. Oh, really? It's the first option of mine. Mine was 84. Well, that's an option. Just... Choose it. Just do well, it. Run with it because I ain't gotten on this. Here's day. why I want to run with 128. So the response says, "Blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways." Oh wait, did you introduce this reading at the beginning and say it was Psalm 84? Yes, I did. I wasn't really listening to you. That's not untypical. Just at that moment, I wasn't listening. <laughs> I was thinking. I was meditating on the scriptures. Oh, that's you're um, you, you're very <laughs> recollected. I am. <laughs> well, here's why Psalm 28. So blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. It is a perfect descriptor, not only of Hannah, but also of Samuel. And and the thing about Samuel, the thing about the reflection of this psalm, blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways, from the scriptural story, Samuel just is much more prominent. He's a bigger figure. He's more, I don't want to say he's more important, but he has a more high-profile job and task. And he's recognized. But, I mean, this psalm is especially speaking about Hannah, because she feared the Lord. She walked in his ways, and she's the one who taught Samuel to walk in his ways. There's actually a great reflection in the catechism about how um, Mary um, Mary is like this, and she's like Samuel, or she's like Hannah in the sense that it's Mary who teaches the baby Jesus how to stand before God, mm. just like Hannah is the one who taught Samuel. So anything great about Samuel, you got to trace it back to Hannah. Yes. And anything that's, that's profound in the humanity of Jesus was given to him by his parents. Particularly Mary, who is the one who, especially in his early life, she took that role. Joseph as well, of course. This is not to downplay Joseph. But there's something profoundly important about the Blessed Mother and her, and her role there. Um, and it goes on. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. For you shall eat the fruit of your handiwork. Blessed are you and be favored. And then the second stanza says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine in the recesses of your home. Your children like olive plants around your table. This is one of those things that... that you can almost read this as a psalm that wants to be slapping Elkanah in the face, 
Like, look at the <laughs> wife you have. She is a fruitful vine, and she is making your children like olive plants. She is the one doing all these things. Open your eyes and see this holy bride that you have, that you've forsaken, that you've ignored. Because she's in the recesses of your home, you might not think about her all the time, but she is the powerhouse. And that's the same thing with Mary, you know, in the Holy Family. we we Mary is the greatest of all saints, but... She doesn't do much in the Gospels. She's always sort of in the background. And even the times that she's in the foreground, she's simply being receptive. She's saying, yes. She's saying, I do to God. She's saying, I agree. I will do it. She's constantly holding things in her heart. But it's in doing that to make her the most powerful woman in all of the scriptures. Mm. And the psalm, I think, is speaking to that. Yeah. It's And it's... Well... Yeah, it, it's I, I read it all the time as as Elkanah, open your eyes, realize what how holy this woman is. And men of the Old Testament in particular, open your eyes. Because so many of the men in the Old Testament are misogynistic, poly um Amorous. Polyamorous jerks doing all these things, ignoring the holy your homily last week, and we're recording this long before Christmas, but your homily last week about um Mary and Jael and Judith, these women who smashed the head of the enemies. If you, you know, people want, want to say that the Old Testament is misogynistic and male-centered, but if you read the stories of these holy women, there's clearly a slant in what the scriptures are saying. They show the sin of the great male leaders, and they tend to show the holiness and the meekness and the powerfulness of the women. Rarely will you see an unholy woman in the Bible. You see some of them, like Jezebel and uh there's a there's a really wicked, terrible queen mother in in Second Kings. Yeah. So there's a handful, but it's almost inordinate. Especially in Luke's gospel, you see holy, holy women. Never in Luke's gospel do you see an unholy woman. You see a lot of unholy men. Yeah, you never see an unholy woman. Which not that there's not unholy women, but the Bible really is trying to tell us something. Yeah, and I mean that was part of the point <laughs> on on which I was preaching is like women need to actually know this and and like. That the, the, the zeal for which a woman can live out the dictates of the Lord is in a very, very profound way. And yes. they are the crown of creation. I mean, like, we're made from mud, and they're made from us, which is beautiful. Yeah. And then we're made from them. I mean, then, then it just keeps going. And it's a, it's a circle. And that's, you know, is it, um, it's either First Timothy or Ephesians. It talks about, uh, I think it's First Corinthians, actually. <laughs> it talks about this this mutual... You know, women. Are, well, we'll get there because that, that's actually a good lead into Colossians. Colossians. Now, Colossians. Um, so much we could say about this, brothers and sisters. Put on as God's choli- chosen ones, holy and beloved. Heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Again, and, I, I'm reading Hannah and all of these things. Yeah, and if the Lord, and if one is a grievance against another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must do. Like. Yeah. Like they, that, those two sentences alone talk about powerful. Yes, I mean, if you were to take that seriously, to actually really find heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, you would be you would be like way out of control. Amazing. Oh yeah. Um, one thing about Colossians, just that we should know, it's in large part written to a Christian community that was struggling with uh, um, Gnosticism. So one of the apologetics that Paul's really giving in this letter is emphasizing the physicality of Jesus. So there seem to be some in the community or false teachers or whatever that are, are, are basically promoting what the, the heresy that would later become docetism, 
which is doseo is the Greek word that means appearance. So the idea was, well, Jesus is God. God can't really suffer because he's God. So he just looked like he suffered. He wasn't really, he didn't really have flesh and bones. I mean, he just looked like, he was like an angel that kind of gave an appearance of doing all these things. He didn't really suffer and die. God can't suffer and die because he's pure spirit. And spirit's good, physical stuff is bad. And so what, one of the things that Colossians keeps drawing out is the physicality of in Christ's body he did this. And so it, it's really emphasizing just reality. Like this, don't, don't, don't live in this kind of spiritual, over-spiritualistic world, but be in the real, be in reality, forgive, have kindness, humility, compassion, forgiveness in a very, in real, physical, tangible ways is what the, the greater letter is really emphasizing. Well, um, and, and then in this particular passage, we start to, I mean, I think at the heart of it, it says that um, whatever you do, verse 17, huh. in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Yeah. And, and that project, yeah. like this is the thing is that if our project in our lives was, I'm going to write this email in the name of the Lord. I'm actually going to cook this meal in the name of the Lord. I'm actually going to do this podcast in the name of the Lord. I'm going to actually watch this television show in the name of yeah. the Lord. Like everything that I do, if I were to actually refocus it and reorient it upon the glorification of God. And this is the thing is why is this coming on Holy Family? Because that's actually like every single moment of every day can be dedicated to the Lord from doing yeah. laundry all the way up through um, recording and doing work and having meals. Yeah. Um, because if you give thanks to God, the father through Jesus Christ, then you're on the path. Now, what goes, what follows is the, is one of the nudging passages, which the second option cuts out. And that's why Wait, we, I'm not trying to leave slam it the second option, but, but this is, it's one of those hard passages that this is, I think where the rub comes with these four readings, which says wives be subordinate to your husbands as is proper in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and avoid any bitterness towards them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Is this one of those Sundays where you, you can look out in the congregation and see like members nudging each other? Oh, yeah. And children, do you hear what he's saying? And shifting. And fathers, <laughs> do not provoke your children so they may not be become discouraged. Like these are like this is this is like this is, again, one of those moments where it's brass tacks, where we're actually getting into what what is the messiness of life? Why are all of these things? Just a couple of weeks ago, we had um, John the Baptist. Everybody's coming to him. Soldiers are saying, like, what should we do? Yeah. And and he's like, um, don't be bullies and take too much, you know? And, like, tax collectors, you know what? Give, do, just follow, like, do what's right and proper. And yeah. so in the family, there's a reality of how do we actually learn how to relate to each other and do it well? But here's the problem. And I don't know if it's a problem or not. Take this in combination with all the other readings. Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. Is Hannah being subordinate to Elkanah? Is Jesus being obedient to his parents at the beginning? Like, we know that he is because he's God, but this is where the rub kind of comes for me because oh and i see why you truth, said I, why, yeah. why you set it up with these other two because now right. we're, we're now at this other with this part and it's like how do we actually see a vision of what these other scriptural moments of actual right. real profundity and and what does subordination really look like what does obedience really look like because it might be more complicated than you know at face value then just do what i say yeah i mean we know certainly being subordinate to your husband does not mean as far as the scriptures are concerned be a doormat, do whatever he says, because right. Hannah certainly doesn't. But what does that mean then? Do you, do you see, and this is where kind of my struggle comes in, because I, I know these words, and I, I get it, I think. 
But how, in what way is Hannah being subordinate to her husband? In what way is Jesus at the beginning being obedient to his parents? I mean, we know on one level, Jesus's father is God himself. Right. So he, he's got an obedience that trumps the obedience of his earthly parents. But at the same time, I mean, and Hannah, how is she being subordinate? Because she, she knows, and this is where there's always a caveat in these passages. And this is where the scriptures never encourage anyone to be a doormat because we are to be subordinate and obedient to God first and foremost. So if Hannah has a husband that is trying to turn her from obedience to God toward obedience to something else, God's command always trumps that. Our obedience to God always trumps our obedience to our parents. If our parents want us to do something that is in conflict with being obedient to God, or our husbands are trying to do something, or our wives are trying to do something that's in conflict with, if, if your wife, if your husband tells you you're not allowed to go to mass on Sunday, you you're not to be subordinate to that. No, no, it's it, that's you know a dis, I mean? that's disordered. It's immoral. Actually. It's disordered. But this is how some people just read the scriptures. Like, well, that, that's what it means. You be, I listen to whatever they say. But there is a hierarchy because. In being subordinate to our parents, in being listening and, and being obedient, God, of course, is our father before anything else. He's, without that, nothing else makes sense. And so this passage, in a certain sense, pre, um, presumes a properly ordered world in which God is God and every other relationship fits within that paradigm. Well, it, it's like this, uh, you know... Um, uh, well, which Baselli told me this? I think it was Steve. Okay, Steve. He says, as I as I as I'm talking to people, you put God first, you know, others second, mm. self third, mm. and then work. And the Broncos. Actually, fourth. you know what? I, I for, shoot, I forgot exactly how he no, said that, it. He said it. He said it way good. better. But but uh, but it's God first, others before, uh, av- others after that, and then only do you after after you actually have been thinking about those selves, do you put yourself yeah. in that way and like. And then even that, it's like when we think of ourselves, we're actually supposed to subject that to the love of God and love of neighbor. Yeah. And so, so in a certain sense, we're saying, well, there's some reality in the midst of that that is going to be ordered within the family life. Yes. And there's, and there's, there's a way in which those things are meant to live in harmony. And, and even Jesus, I mean, he's obviously obedient to his father, but he's got to say then, okay, well, how do I reconcile my obedience to my father with my obedience to Mary and Joseph? And he's able to do that. I, I did stay in the temple. I did teach these teachers. But now I'm going to listen to what my parents... He's reconciled. You get the, the, the idea the Christ child is literally reconciling his relationships in his life as he in his humanity is growing and maturing and figuring out how the world works. And Hannah too. She's, she's never disrespectful to Elkanah, I think, outright. But she's reconciling these relationships and saying, this is how it's going to happen. This is, this is what needs to take place because God is first. I'm saying this in respect to you, but there's a reconciliation of these complicated, difficult relationships. And this is never something just so straightforward that it's just going to be like Stepford wives. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but, but this is the thing is that if you look at this, the temptation for, for wives to disregard their husbands and say that, yeah. that they're stupid. Yeah. Is something that's that's very real. I mean, yeah. like you see that in the media constantly. Yep. The portrayal of fatherhood is like boneheads. Here, yeah, a bunch of boneheads. Yeah. And then husbands love your wives and avoid any bitterness towards them. Yeah. 
it's really easy for men to stop loving their wives yeah. and to start to get bitter. I yeah. mean, like these are, this is just a real, temp- these are just temptations. Yeah. And yeah. like, and, and I think about the good holy couples that I know and mm-hmm. they're strong together and they live this in them. And actually, it, it's actually very natural to have these things. And right. if, if, if you can watch any romantic comedy and you're like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful and pouring out. And, and I think people want these realities but then it is messy and you have to step into it and to grow and to learn in those ways. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. And so then children obey your parents. How easy it is for kids to be like, mom, you don't know me, dad, you don't know me. Like, and it's hard to do. And then fathers to provoke their kids. That's really easy. <laughs> yeah. Fathers get to double hit on this one. They do. Well, which is kind of appropriate if there is a biblical vision of the father having a certain kind of real authority over the family right they should have more pressure put on them to be holy be holy toward your wives be holy toward your children don't provoke them love your wives you know if you're going to be the head of the household then there should be more service that falls on you yeah you have to serve more yeah but the the challenge is always you know if you, I, you know, if you're a young person or something and you're excited about your faith and your parents aren't or something like that, the temptation is like, well, you're a bunch of idiots, you know, and even when you're pursuing good things, like young people have a habit of disobeying their parents in bad things, but even sometimes in good things like, well, I, you know, and I know we have a lot of listeners who are in college and stuff and maybe you're more faithful in your faith than your parents are. And it might be tempting to be like, well, I'm doing this thing and I'm going to mass and you're not, and you don't understand. And to find a way to actually do that with full respect right, and, and honor them in the same way. That's where the challenge comes. That's where the rub comes. And it's possible because God has given us the grace to do those things and the vision for it. Right. But we have to have humility. And that's the key to all of this. If yes. you have humility, these things begin to work themselves out. Yep. If it's all about you and what you're doing right. and who you're following and who you're obeying, then it begins to break down. Once you begin to put yourself in that line that Steve said at the back of that, respecting others first, putting others before yourself, then these things begin to make sense. Yeah. And that's the that's the beauty of this feast that the church gives us to reflect on. These hard realities that we all live in. And so praise be to God that we have it. Happy Holy Family! Happy Holy Family, you guys. We'll be back next week. And uh, Merry Christmas. Don't fake the funk. Never.